So this weekend, uh, Rach and I, we don't get out a whole lot. So we rented, we red boxed Dunkirk, the movie, for the first time. For the first time. And this is probably one of those movies that you should see on a big screen with Dolby Digital Surround Sound and all of those things, maybe even uh, an IMAX or something. But we just rented it this weekend. So I, I also feel, because we're so late to the show at Liberty, to maybe maybe get into some spoiler stuff, because um, that's like spoiling the movie Titanic. Like, it's a historical event, and it's an older movie. If I'm spoiling it, it's your fault, not mine, right? <laughs> this movie, though, I was particularly struck with how tense this movie was. If you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. You find yourself kind of clenched the whole time. It, it, of course, detailed this this military failure and extraction of these British and French troops during an early portion of World War II. And most of the movie just, like, involved tensely wondering when the next bomb was going to fall or when the next bullet was going to screech through the frame, right? There's one scene in particular on the beach where they're trying to get picked up by this giant warboat where thousands of soldiers are just in lines waiting to get picked up for an escape. And then an enemy plane swoops in and drops all these bombs and everyone hits their stomachs on the beach. And there's just this period of about three to eight seconds where you're just wondering where those bombs are gonna hit. And then there's this concussive blast and then everyone kind of gets up that can get up and you move on to the next thing. And then some people didn't get up, right? And so it's really masterful in this movie. Uh, this is kind of how the whole movie is in various scenes. Um, it's masterful. The director of this movie, uh, Christopher Nolan, he, he, he never shows a German soldier's face in this whole thing. He never shows a bad guy's face. But there's always this tension of this conflict that's happening and that's kind of pressing upon you. There's this communication, this thick gloom and this intense conflict each moment on sea, on land, in the air. Even as the best possible results of this thing might not spell obvious victory, the movie closes with this line uh, on a train car. They're reading this headline and there's a Winston Churchill assurance that this allied cause and this is the quote, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to, rescue, to the rescue and the liberation of the old. That the new world in God's time with power and might would step forth to the rescue and liberation of the old. I think it's this precisely into this cosmic conflict and struggle that marks gospel narrates the coming in God's good time of the new world to the rescue and liberation of the old in Jesus. During this epiphany season, we've been tracking along with Mark's telling of the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And in epiphany, we kind of expect God to show up and show out. So we're keenly tuned into what it looks like for God to be on the move in Jesus's ministry. Some of us might be more inclined and oriented to ways other evangelists tell this story. Mark's 
kind of scary and kind of punchy and kind of that fast talker that it's hard to keep up with and you're a little scared and it's a little aggressive. We might like like the physician Luke's like orderly account of how these things happen. Luke's an organizer, right? Or Matthew uh, tells a story of kind of recasting Israel's story through Jesus' ministry. So you've heard it said, but I say to you, and Jesus is almost this new Moses character bringing a new law. Or maybe you like the mystical John who deals in signs and metaphor pointing us towards the coming kingdom. But Mark's goals are a little different. Mark's good news about Jesus Christ, God's son, if it was a movie, it would start with a car crash, right? Like, I, I think if, if, if like, Terrence Malick was J- the gospel writer John, then, like, I, I think Mark would be, like, Christopher Nolan or, like, the Coen brothers, so where they just, like, hit you in the face right off the bat. You see, the, uh, we read a few weeks ago, the heavens have been torn open. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and a voice thunders from above. Do you remember this? You're my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then Jesus is thrown into the wilderness. Matthew says Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Mark says Je- Jesus was ekbalo, thrown out, expelled into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And then Jesus, upon his return, calls simply but forcefully, come, follow me. He's not mincing words. And now, in our narrative today, it says immediately, one of Mark's key words, immediately. When, when do things happen in Mark? Right now. <laughs> Five minutes ago. Immediately, Jesus comes to Capernaum to teach in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Jesus is not only entering sacred space, but also inhabiting sacred time. This is when we might expect Jesus to really hit his stride, right? That he'd embrace the pulpit, he'd begin his residency, he'd put down roots. It all starts well enough, and we're told people are amazed at his teaching. He almost This is like his TED Talk racking up views, right? Like people really like what's coming out of Jesus' mouth because he taught with authority unlike the teachers of the law that they were used to. And at this moment, precisely on cue, a man possessed with an evil spirit starts howling at Jesus. Like at about this point in the sermon, one of you stands up and starts yelling at me, right? I guess that would mean that I, y'all were impressed with my teaching and I taught as someone with authority. But you get what I'm saying. Like, this is freaky, unexpected stuff happening in this sacred space and sacred time. If you weren't expecting that, like, what if, what if you were out sharing the good news with someone and how they received it was by yelling at you, what have you to do with us like, that's even scarier from the get-go. You're talking with one person, and they answer you, what have you do <laughs> to do with us? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. Imagine you're Jesus, and that's what's coming at you, right? You probably would think that something was going drastically wrong rather than on script and drastically right. But let me be clear. This isn't, like, 
at this point in Jesus' ministry where some good things are happening and Jesus is establishing his reputation as a trustworthy teacher of what God's doing. This isn't some sort of karma where there's like this backlash, all these good things have happened, so now something bad happens. This isn't like Newtonian physics of like a reaction yields an equal and opposite reaction. Like this is war that's breaking in and Mark's telling us about it. Upon the evil spirit's confession, you are the one holy God. Jesus silences the demon and casts it out of the man. It shook the man's body and came out of him. This seems to only reconfirm with the crowds Jesus' authority to say things that were true with force in ways previously unseen or unheard of. When we read Mark's gospel, we get the distinct impression that the world is that something is radically wrong with the world and that God is going to intervene. And that's what's happening. God is in the act of intervening in Jesus. The kingdom of God is at hand. The veil is being pulled back from our eyes and from history, and the veil will eventually be shredded as Jesus dies on the cross, just like when the very heavens above Jesus at his baptism were ripped open, and, there's, and we're, we're given the sense that much more is going on than meets our eyes or that we are expecting that's going on. Like something deep, something rich, something even scary is happening, like behind the scenes at all times. This is a different world than most of us are used to inhabiting, right? This like tame world where we just go along and do good things and check things off our list. Like this is a world of conflict. This is a battle. I think it's huge for us to realize this. There's always going on more here than we can see or assume or imagine. Sometimes it's easy to emphasize the, po the positive parts of all that. Like, I think we do that pretty good, and you guys are amazing at, at um, showing me the ways that God is working in our midst through ordinary things. Like, when we're, it, we, we went through all these things about God's presence this fall. Like, when we're with kids, we experience the presence of Christ. When we gather around the table and we proclaim the good news, when we're with the poor and suffering, when we're doing all these things, like uh, we, we, we participate in and experience the divine even in the midst of really mundane, ordinary things. But as we cultivate a sense and expectation for God to show up and show out in this epiphany season, and we hope to hear God's voice in really unexpected registers calling us to and from unexpected places, as we attend to this reality that Jesus that Christ plays in 10,000 places, not just within church walls and during t quiet times, we have to be aware that this also means that the other side is also happening too, that this is being met with, with a reaction. We, like the crowds, like to marvel at some of the profound things that th through Scripture come out of Jesus' mouth. We get the sense that Jesus knows the story is an author of the story. He, he has authorial intent and knows how to improvise, and we want to improvise along. And here's the thing. If this world is that jam-packed with meaning and glory and presence and activity, we need to be tuned in and calibrated to being able to sense those things. I love, like, like I said, this world is jam-packed with glory and meaning. Like I love in the Hebrew Bible, in the, our Old Testament, when it talks about glory, that 
that w- glory word is this word kavod, which means heavy, but it also means liver. <laughs> That's how Hebrew works. Uh, that means that, that glory is something all around us, but, it, but it's super dense, super heavy, but it's also something so visceral and deep and internal and substantive. It's, uh, I, I think, uh, when I think about this, I, I think about this quote from, from this writer, Annie Dillard, who, who writes about writing so much, so wonderfully. And she talks about our experience with this deep, dense, heavy, glory world that we're in and how we, how we miss it and how we let it fly by so often. She asks the question, why do people in church seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute? Says, does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we blithely invoke? She says, or I... Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it at all? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. I think this is what Mark would say, too. Uh, She says, it is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. I wish we had more of those, by the way. She says, you shouldn't be wearing straw hats to church we should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews for the sleeping God may awake someday and take offense or the waking God might draw us to where we can never return. This is how serious and heavy the good side of the conflict is. And if this world is that jam-packed with all of that, It also is jam-packed with a bunch of fakes who have stake in the old staying the same in the logic of this universe that's been predicated on sin and death and scarcity maintaining. So when this world is that rich and that dense, it also kicks, uh, it also like kicks a hive or pokes a bear that that is going to react against this. And that's what we see with Jesus' teaching in Capernaum. If all this is true and the kingdom of God is near, in and around us, and I think it is, it also means that opposition to that kingdom, those rivals and those counterfeits will press in on us with the same sort of subtle intensity. And just because it's subtle doesn't mean it's not insidious, right? This is why Jesus' teaching is met with recognition in a way that's unmatched by his own followers. Like the demons recognize who Jesus is and what he's about, even before his disciple. It's not till the very middle, the midpoint of, of Mark's gospel that Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Holy One. It's not till the end on the cross that the Roman centurion matches that uh, recognition. The demons get it first. They know. The crowds are interested, but the demons are terrified. The crowds are kind of like leaning in, doing that kind of grad school thing where you say, say more. But the demons are in full-on scramble mode. Jesus' identity is hidden from most, but the demons know that they've been put on notice. Their time is up. The demon asks an amazingly insightful rhetorical question, have you come to destroy us? The answer, of course, is yes from Jesus. Jesus' ministry shows us that, yes, this place is enchanted 
And God is on the move, but that also means the stakes are high and the fight is real. This fight comes through loud and clear throughout throughout the whole of the New Testament. Like, if you want to, like, not really fact check, but, like, check sources against the Gospels, see what Peter and Paul are saying. And they're, they're normally somewhat aligned. So, like, Peter in 1 Peter 2, after claiming our identities as chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation belonging to our God that's been brought out of darkness, we can declare praises, tell, reminds us, dear friends, since you are immigrants, y'all, us all, are immigrants and strangers in this world, I urge you to avoid worldly desires that wage war against our lives. Or Paul similarly entreats us in Ephesians 6. We are fighting against human enemies, not against human enemies, but against rulers and authorities, forces of cosmic darkness and spiritual powers of evil in the heavens. These spiritual powers and principalities are all around us and hard at work. Perhaps you're sitting there saying, I've never seen this. I've never experienced this. Don't tell me ghost stories. I don't believe you. Well, I like how William Stringfellow talks about our situation here. He describes this and he says, people are veritably besieged on all sides at every moment simultaneously by claims and strivings of various powers seeking to dominate and usurp, take a person's time, attention, abilities, effort, each grasping at life itself each demanding idolatrous service and loyalty. In such a tumult, it becomes very difficult for a human being to even identify the idols that would possess him or her. So if you've never seen this, I assure you, you felt it. <laughs> you felt these pulls, you felt these, these conflicts, you felt this anxiety, you felt this gloom. Um, this is exactly how these things work as parasites and imposters on the good God of a good creation. Give these powers quarter like a cancer. They try to take us over and kill and steal and destroy. This can happen in something like is innocent seeming as like our addictions to distraction or technology or novelty or approval. This is also kind of ramps up and happens in things that are more perpetual and widespread and seem like we can't get out of the loop of these things like misogyny or white supremacy. These powers are at work uh, across institutions and across time in people, but also in things that are bigger than people that are harder to pin down. The logic is the same. The goal for these powers is more. The battle is raging. But Jesus has authority. He said he taught as one with authority, not like the scribes. His conflict kind of sparked actually by conflict with the good institutional status quo. But Jesus is given authority that even exceeds that, even over powers that are in line, but especially over powers that aren't. These powers might be powerful and alluring, but they're not in control. That's something we need to remember. 
we're so besieged by these things. And, and when we awaken to them and become aware of them, sometimes it's even worse because it feels like we're trapped. It feels like we're on that beach and we're just being bombed and we're just with our face down wondering when it's going to hit us. But Jesus is in control. Jesus is in charge. These are not in control. At best, they're just trying to wreck things on the way out. They're like lighting things on fire and smashing headlights as they get cast out of town, screaming and convulsing the man as Jesus exercises it and returns him to his health. We're told in Colossians that Jesus has power even over these powers because he's disarmed them on the cross that he's disarmed the powers and authorities and he's made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross triumphing triumphing over them at the cross that place of Jesus's loss in weakness becomes his place of victory for us place where he unmasked the madness of these powers logic like the greatest thing that they have to offer um, and, and the, the scariest thing in the world is that someone might die and Jesus dies and then goes through death. It's the biggest unmasking of these powers that, that could happen. I think this, this sort of power available to us in Christ should send us to God in prayer for deliverance, that, that we have access to this by God's spirit. This sort of intervention that we expect should make us bow our heads and praise that God is so interested in us. Like that's when I read this exorcism story, it's in some ways it seems so far away in time and space and worldview. I can't even imagine that happening in my life. But if it does anything, it shows that Jesus has authority and Jesus is interested in people in health bringing and shalom making. And we should, we should also be eager to join Jesus in this mission. Later in Mark's gospel, whereas Matthew remembers Jesus' commission to his disciples to spread the gospel, baptize, and make disciples, Mark records Christ declaring that his disciples will drive out demons in my name. It means that we'll work with Jesus in exercising these fake powers from places where Jesus should be in charge. Our lives, our world, our neighborhoods. So we join with fear and trembling. We join Jesus in this ministry of cosmic confrontation in painstakingly local and real ways. So as we go today, I, I want you guys to consider some of these like crash helmet type of epiphanies, like normal things where you kind of sleepwalk through it, not realizing how deep and intense the spiritual reality is happening here. The things that you do both in church, but also in the community and in your life during the week, but pl places and things imbued with deep spiritual meaning and intense spiritual battle. Like, take for instance, like praying. In a few minutes, Sarah will lead us in our prayers of the people. That is like, for some of us, very intimidating to hear or to think about praying in public. But in some ways, it's so sweet and benign and something like nice little churches can do. They pray for each other. In some churches, 
public prayer becomes like the gossip mill, right? Like how you talk about people in like holy ways. But what if, what if this prayer, <laughs> what if as normal seeming as it is to pray for someone else, what if that is a chance to enter into a darkness on behalf of someone else and to be a part of unmasking and unraveling powers of secrecy and selfishness that isolate and keep us apart? What if you might enter into communion with God on behalf of someone who, who doesn't feel like they can have communion with God, praying for their welfare? What if you can align them with Christ, our advocate who stands with us and before God on our behalf? The theologian famously put it, to, cr to clasp hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. Something is normal and Sunday schoolish becomes a public protest. Like I, I think about that for Wednesday morning uh, prayer on the porch in front of the neighborhood, present to God as we're present to our neighbors. It is a public protest against suffering in this neighborhood, or it can be. It's a, a public witness towards hope, healing, and hospitality in a presence that says God is in this place and is fighting on behalf of those who feel like they're losing or who don't even know that there's a fight going on. All just by showing up and being present to God in prayer. Or think about something as like simple and homey as potluck, and we, we, we love potluck around here. But each week when you choose to bring something of yourself to share and you choose to maybe just come and stay and sit across from someone who you don't know or who you wouldn't know, you're witnessing not only to the hope that Jesus is present in our midst like around casseroles, <laughs> but also witnessing to the way w the powers and principality use scarcity and competition and comparison and president prejudice to separate and to break down community and to build up walls. Like a Pollock meal could be like ground zero for this dividing wall of hostility being broken down among us. A Pollock meal could be a feeding of the 5,000. We've never had 5,000 people at Pollock, but a sign, symbol, and foretaste of this kingdom that takes blesses, breaks, and gives, and then there's always enough. And we don't know how it happened, but we know God is here. And the powers don't, don't operate that way. The powers say, there's not enough. There never will be. You're a lousy cook. You can't hold a conversation. They're not going to like you. There's no room for you. And potluck witnesses to something different. Wars against that narrative. So I'll close with these lines from a 17th century hymn that says, The strife is o'er, the battle done, now is the victor's triumph won, now be the song of praise begun, alleluia. So if you're here today and you feel like you're in a battle that's bigger than you can handle, welcome, you are. <laughs> The promise of God is not that your battle is over, but that in Christ you are joined in battle. And in Christ, victory has already been won. The kingdom of God is at hand. 
repent, believe, join in Christ. That via the cross of his suffering at the hands of these powers and principalities, and then by God raising Jesus by the Spirit, he's overcome these dark forces once and for all. And believing in Jesus is participating in his struggle and his death, but also in this eternal victory that starts like yesterday, like started a long time ago, but starts now. You being here today amongst this body of Christ is part of the fight, and you have, you have friends locking arms with you in this fight. That's the good news. Can you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this, <coughs> this word that is <coughs> maybe strange to our ears. Use that strangeness to, to, to spark um, uh, a fire in us. Use that strangeness to, to help us look again um, and read more closely and uh, consider ourselves in the light of your story. Lord, we especially thank you that we can trust in Jesus as one with authority, the author of life, and as one who has bound the strong man and plundered his home, has won this victory for us, and that we participate in that victory. Give us confidence, give us faith, give us endurance. We pray especially for those who are suffering in fights that we don't know anything about. Let us lock arms with them. Um, in some cases, let us circle the wagons around them to give them some relief, some respite. We thank you that all of this is possible. Through Jesus, our Lord. Amen.